0: y'all welcome back to the 2000s of called a podcast hosted by me carly i revisit iconic movies and music from the 2000s and this week we'll be talking about josie and the pussycats i've waited my entire fucking life to talk about this movie at length with someone so y'all are gonna hear it today <laughs> um this is one of my favorite movies movies of all time it's a part of my soul's makeup i i Pray to Josie, Valerie, and Melody every night before I go to sleep. This is one of those movies I watch to try to pull me out of like a depressive episode or an anxiety attack because it just reminds me of who I am and where I came from, (laughs) which is this fucking movie. It's a part of my soul's makeup. I hope you feel the same way. I, I haven't met a lot of people who feel this way about this movie or perhaps they haven't seen it and they don't know. But um, I feel like as an adult, I've realized the cult following that it has because it was way ahead of its time. It's still relevant now. Um, and we're going to get into it today. I'm so fucking stoked to share this episode with you all. This episode is a deep dive into one of my favorite films of all time, Josie and the Pussycats. I always joke that I like highbrow stuff like Stanley Kubrick, Sophia Coppola, Wes Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson. And then I love Josie and the Pussycats in Spice World and like maybe (laughs) in bad movies, obviously. So um, I don't think Josie and the Pussycats is a bad movie, but we most definitely have gone through some bad ones this season. But yeah, so we're dishing on everything today. The production, the soundtrack, the costume design, trivia, casting, everything. Um, We'll get into the box office success and what it means in the film industry because this movie bombed in the box office. So Josie and the Pussycats was released on April 11th of 2001. It's 98 minutes. Their budget was 22 to 39 million and it only made 49, I'm sorry, 14.9 million at the box office. It's a music comedy film. It's campy. It's kitschy. It was directed by Harry Elfont and Deborah Kaplan. Rotten Tomatoes' score is 55%. Metacritic score is 47%. And it's uh, rated 77% by Google users. So the plot, if you've never seen it, is as follows. For years, the record industries have inserted subliminal messages into music so they can turn teenagers into brain-dead zombies who do nothing but buy, buy, buy. And whenever the musician or band finds out the truth, the record company silences them to keep the truth from coming out. When the hot boy band DuJour discovers this, their manager, Wyatt Frame, under his evil corporate boss Fiona, I'm sorry, corrupt boss Fiona, has the plane they are flying in crash and has them looking for a new band to use for their evil schemes. Enter Josie, the Ditsy melody, and the tough Valerie from Josie and the Pussycats, a small band who wants to make it to the big time when they are discovered by Wyatt, they give in and become big rock stars, but will they find out that they are just pawns for the record industry or will fame take them over? Yeah, that's what the movie's about. It's got a huge, magnificent cast. Um, Rachel Lee cook, who is a Libra goat. We're going to get into the astrology right now as well. Rosario Dawson is a Taurus goat. Tara Reed is a Scorpio rabbit. Um, Missy Pyle is a Scorpio rat. Alan Cumming is an Aquarius snake. Parker Posey is a Scorpio monkey. Lots of Scorpios. Uh, Tara and Parker actually have the same birthday on November 8th. That's interesting. Seth Green is an Aquarius tiger. Eugene Levy is a Sagittarius dog. And Donald Faison, sorry if I'm saying his last name wrong, He is a cancer tiger. So let's get into the IMDb trivia, which is super, super interesting. So did you fucking know Beyonce, Aaliyah, Left Eye, and Brandy all auditioned for the role of Valerie? So the director said fairly recently in like 2017, he wanted someone who knew how to do comedy. Beyonce was quiet and shy and Aaliyah was serious and thoughtful. I was like, wow, that would be a different movie. I'm not saying it would be bad because they're obviously such huge, iconic stars. But yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting. So in the movie, there are approximately 73 companies with product placement in the film. They had a running gag of product placement and subliminal advertising including brands such as Pizza Hut, Motorola, Starbucks, Gatorade, Target, Sega and so many more. None of it was actually a paid promotion by any of these companies. I did not know that. They were just voluntarily put in there as a joke of the subliminal messaging in the in the movie. I don't know about you but when I first saw that when I first saw it I was like, "Wow." They have a shit ton of sponsors for this movie. It's weird that it did so bad with that many sponsors. Well, that's why they were not paid to put those in there at all. So, yeah. Next little trivia for us. Rachel Lee Cook's singing voice was actually dubbed by the lead singer of the band Letters to Cleo. Her name is Kay Hanley. That name sounded familiar, so I looked it up, and they have covers of the song I Want You to Want Me, and cruel to be kind that are featured on the 10 things I hate about you soundtrack. That's crazy. I didn't realize that Rachel's voice was dubbed because it, it truly sounds like such a good match to her actual voice. It sounds like she's really singing. singing. So that was a great choice. I think so Rachel Rosario and Tara went to band camp for two weeks to learn how to play their instruments and look convincing on screen. However, they didn't become proficient enough to the level they could play effectively on the soundtrack. So the actual music was played by studio musicians. I mean, that's, that's understandable. Two weeks is not a lot of time to be proficient enough in an instrument to make an album. You know, I, when I heard that, I thought of almost famous, another one of my favorite movies of all time. I read on their trivia page that their band. Stillwater rehearsed for four hours a night, five nights a week for six weeks to play their instruments. And I, I can't recall if their, you know, their versions of the songs were featured on the soundtrack or if they had to have like music musicians supplement and stuff. But yeah, I just thought of that. Another fact in order to preserve the wholesome image of Josie and the pussy cats, Archie Comics demanded there be a scene where Josie, Valerie, and Melody were seen brushing their teeth. (laughs) Uh, Rachel E. Cook also said in an Entertainment Tonight interview, which we're going to get into later, that DC slash Archie Comics had a mandate about wearing ears and tails for a certain percentage of the movie. She said that they were always tripping over each other's tails. I just thought that was really funny. And we're going to get into another piece of trivia about Riverdale because I mean to they had like yeah we're gonna get into it I mean the DVD version that I have I I somehow bought like a family version of the DVD in which they dub over like one of the characters says you suck you can tell this what she's saying but they dub over it to say you stink and then later in the film you hear ass and bastard and other actual curse words. It's just funny the the weird ass exceptions and you know things that they have. So anyway, due to the level of profanity and adult themes, the family-friendly Archie Comics, which published the original Josie and the Pussycat stories, would denounce the film and discouraged people from seeing it. Strangely, very strangely, many years later the comics would not only be fine with, but also promote the television series Riverdale 2017 based on their Archie stories in which also featured Josie Melody and Valerie as secondary characters, which arguably had much darker adult themes in its storylines than this movie. So isn't that weird? I just wonder why they had a problem with it. Then compared to now, you know, comment below. Let me know what you think. Alan Cummings' character tells the, tells the girls how lucky they are to be able to go back to their 10-year high school reunion as such huge successes. Three years earlier, in the Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion movie of 1997, his character was the greatest success at the 10-year reunion. So likely this line was an intentional reference. I thought that was cute. Tara Reed and Carson Daly started dating after they met on set. And they eventually became engaged, but their relationship ended in June of 2001. I thought that was interesting. And in that part where they're fighting on the like fake set of TRL, you remember when Melody's character says, I'm a Cancer or I'm a Scorpio. Like <laughs> they're, that's their actual sign. Like Carson says he's a Cancer and Tara says that she's a Scorpio. And that is actually true fun little Astro fact for you. <laughs> um, early on in the movie, when Wyatt and Lex, the pilots of the private plane carrying the boy band Du Jour, are about to escape via parachute, Wyatt enters the cockpit and says, take the Chevy to the levee. This is a lyric from Don McLean's song, American Pie, a song commemorating the plane crash, which took the lives of the rockers, buddy Holly, Richie Valens and the big bopper. Tara Reed starred in American Pie nineteen ninety nine, which is not related <laughs> to the song beyond using the title. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't put that together. That was interesting. The concert scene at the end of the film was filmed at Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver. In order to get as many teens into the Coliseum as possible, thousands of complimentary tickets were given out at record stores with the promise of a performance from Before Four a popular boy band in Canada at the time. I hadn't heard of them, but I mean, boy bands were quite popular in the early 2000s. Still are. The boy band performed their hit song Get Down multiple times for the crowd in between takes of the scene to get them hyped up. And lastly, two of the Pussycats later joined the Star Wars universe. Rachel Lee Cook voiced numerous characters in video games and cartoons, And Rosario Dawson plays Osaka in The Mandalorian 2019 and in the new uh, series that they're going to be coming out with on on Disney+. And also Seth Green, who is Travis from DuJour, voiced characters in Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and other Star Wars projects. All right, now we're going to get into how the film was received at the time and I'm gonna read something that I found that enraged me. I mean, it was on Wikipedia. I I get a lot of stuff from Wikipedia, which I know is not good, but I yeah. So Robert Ebert, uh an American film critic, he was a film critic at the Chicago Sun Times, said, Josie and the Pussycats are not dumber than the Spice Girls, but they're as dumb as the Spice Girls, which is dumb enough. <sighs> bitch nothing could be dumber than that fucking sentence i mean if you're a film critic and you can't muster up something witty or actually critical of the film get the fuck out of here like just say you don't like women and all you know how to do is compare women to each other my jaw dropped when i read that i'm very biased because i love spice girls and i love josie and the pussycats i was like damn i'm yeah, I mean, I, it may not have done well at the box office, but all we all know that's not necessarily indicative of success or, like, a good movie. You know, there are tons of cult classic movies that bombed at the box office. Um, you know what else bombed at the box office? I have a list. The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Donnie Darko, Fight Club, Dazed and Confused, The Thing, The Big Lebowski, Office Space, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Labyrinth, and Blade Runner. And fun fact, one of the reasons, or maybe the only reason Blade Runner and the thing bombed at the box office in the 80s is because it came out around the same time as E.T. and Star Wars. So I'm referencing this Esquire article that I found very interesting. Here's a quote from the article. It's tempting to look back with the benefit of hindsight and wonder how two movies that targeted the same exact demographic could have been scheduled to open on the same weekend. Why weren't they spaced out a little? Today, of course, there are armies of high-paid statisticians who crunch tons of numbers to circumvent that exact problem. But the movie business was a different beast in 1982. It also turned out to be a ridiculously loaded boom year for science fiction movies. An embarrassment of intergalactic riches... (laughs) In addition to Blade Runner and the Thing, 1982 also gave us Poltergeist, Mad Max 2, Tron, Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, and Steven Spielberg's 800-pound box office Gorilla E.T., all within the same barely-ajar 10-week summer window. But still, why not spread the wealth around a little? Well, as with just about all things, you can pin the blame on Star Wars. (laughs) After all... Both 1977's A New Hope and the 1980's Empire Strikes Back opened in May. If you worked in a major studio in 1982, the new box office conventional wisdom dictated that sci-fi geeks came out in hordes when air conditioning was on the menu. (laughs) That last part is very rude. I think everyone loves air conditioning. That's not unique to Star Wars nerds, fucker. (laughs) But yeah, box office success is not indicative of a good movie at all. To further demonstrate my point, I found a WatchMojo video called Top 20 Bad Movies That Were Successful at the Box Office. It's on YouTube. I love WatchMojo. Don't you love them? So they made this video. I'll link it on my socials. They ranked them in order from their bad ratings, the highest rated being the worst movie that made the most at the box office. So their list contains The Grown Ups movies, Cars 2 Which made 562 million at the box office. Spider-Man 3, which I mentioned last week, I watched for the first time ever. It is trash. Uh, It's one of the most cringe. It's the one that has that cringe emo revenge dance in front of Mary Jane. It is, it's, it's so bad. I don't know how much that one made, but they also listed the emoji movie. The 2016 Suicide Squad made $750 million at the box office. Jared Leto as the Joker is hot garbage, but James Gunn's The Suicide Squad completely made up for it. I've seen it three or four times now. Fifty Shades of Grey, that franchise made, get ready for this, $1.3 Billion! billion! And the number one movie or saga on their list is the twilight saga which made 3.3 billion worldwide that's insane i'm gonna be vulnerable on the podcast today and say that i've never seen any of them i do not give a single fuck about twilight (laughs) i know they have like a a, such a huge following maybe because they're they're bad like i think well i don't know i don't i don't want to you know if they're your favorite movie. You do that. You, you, you're welcome to love it. I don't love it. I just can't. But yeah, so I think the reason why box office numbers are used as a measure of success in Hollywood is because it technically helps studios to know if projects like it will have success in the future. So essentially it gives them some insight as to whether they'll like green light something if something like it wasn't good or didn't do well at the box office in the past, basically if something will make them money or not. But yeah, here, here's more on the film's cult status. It's earned years after the film has been praised for its satirical take on American pop culture and for its, what word is that prescience in satirizing product placement in the corporatization of the music industry Evaluating the film for the A.V. Club in 2009, Nathan Robin writes, or Rabin, I'm sorry, Nathan Rabin, writes that it is funny, sly, and sweet, a sly, sustained spoof of consumerism. He rates the film as a secret success. Los Angeles Times wrote in 2017 that the film's sharply satirical vision of hyper-commercial record industry feels only more relevant. I couldn't agree more. I did most of the digging around... Before watching the movie again, because I've, you know, I've seen it probably a hundred times just to see what I could find out before watching it, you know, again for the first time in a long time. And like a creator named Luscious Garbage on TikTok so wonderfully said, she makes really cool cult movie content. She pointed out that the song "Backdoor Lover by DuJour satirizes how suggestive music is for, pre- for preteens, how, how suggestive they can get. And yeah, they're literally the song Backdoor Lover. They are singing about anal sex. If you listen to it, <clears throat> if you listen to it closely, which I hadn't before. I mean, the lyrics are coming from behind with the lights down low. You and me, no one has to know. Um, it gets worse. That's, that's only the beginning. I heard that and was like, you're reading too much into this. But it keeps going. This song is not about the poop shoot. Well, it is, you know, I won't hurt you. So open up and let me in. Some people use the front door, but that's never been my way. Just cause I slip in the back door. That doesn't make me. Hey, (laughs) that's the lyric. So, I mean, he said, Hey, instead of gay, obviously they're talking about butt sex. Y'all we know this. Now as adults, but yeah, they're making fun of how suggestive this, these, this music can be for preteens that they're fucking listening to. So yeah, now we're going to get into the costume design of this movie. Um, I found this wonderful article by Sarah Spellings at Vogue. It's called Josie and the Pussycats is one of the greatest Y2K fashion movies. And I wholeheartedly agree. So costume designer Lisa Evans told an entire story through the wardrobe. She managed to nail early aughts fashion and examined the psychology of trendiness in a surprisingly nuanced way for such a romp of a movie. Vogue's pattern recognition column, a column about fads for the trend obsessed, she goes on to say. Just one year into the decade, Evans summed up the aesthetic of the early aughts so well, she knew she couldn't make a movie with up-to-minute trends if they would already be old news by the time the movie hit theaters. So she did a bit of forecasting and realized that fashion was heading into the direction of opulent 70s sexy aesthetic and really low-rise low pants. Lisa Evans, the costume designer, also said, Before shooting... I met with a couple of different jean companies, and I said, Hey, let's do these low-rise jeans. Incredibly low-rise. I kept saying, smaller, shorter, shorter. We had to custom make a lot of clothes because there was nothing at the time that was low-rise enough, Evans said. Honestly, in the film, I probably costume-designed and made about 95% of the clothes. Every time, this is from Vogue, not Lisa Evans, um... Every time I rewatch Josie and the Pussycats, I find something different in how the clothes signal an internal shift for the characters or foreshadow a development to come. They almost function like subtitles, adding context to the lavish outrageousness of the plot. I noticed this too. I Just like before Josie listens to that song with subliminal messages telling her to go solo, she goes out wearing like that power suit it's like a tiger a tiger print uh suit instead of like like cute flirty matchy stuff she would normally do with melody and valerie um yeah the the vogue article goes on to say trends get kind of a bad rap they've often they're often viewed as a lazy way to interact with fashion to be brainwashed into thinking that orange is out and leopard print is in but they can signify a lot more than that. Insecurity and group identity among them. Yeah, there are definitely people out there who think this way. But if you like a trend, this is me. I say if you like a trend and it makes you feel good, do it. Like, if I mean, if you like cottage core or you like some sweater that a bunch of people are getting, so, so what? Like, I've made peace. With this over the pandemic, I just had this internal dialogue that was like, "You can't dress goth one day, and then like pastel cottage core the next." It just like, it won't make sense. And then I questioned it. And I was like, "Why? That it's like a Karen in my head or something." And I, I mean, I try to question those thoughts as they come up. That are like, well, "Why would you do that? It's not gonna make sense." It's like, "To why does it fucking matter?" You know, um, yeah, I mean, my taste is all over the place in in music and clothes and movies and like everything. It, it I don't think it really matters that. I don't think it matters. It's only what you like that matters is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, don't care what other people think about you. They can think whatever they want. The takeaway from Josie fashion wise. Is not as simple as trends are bad. Instead, at the end, they're adapted to the individual, turned down in a little accent. Uh, Yeah, let's get into these fucking looks. We're going to put, we're going to do a poll on Instagram. I'd love to know your favorite looks. Literally every scene is a fucking look. I tried my absolute hardest to capture every look that I could. If I couldn't find it on the internet, I took as good of a picture as I could while I was watching it. On DVD. Um, And now we're going to get into the soundtrack. That's the soundtrack that we are featuring this episode because there's no other choice, bitch. (laughs) I would I would die to have a remastered version of this album. I would die to have a second Josie and the Pussycats album, period. I think this album fucking slaps and I already had it in my library. I listen to it often. I listen to it um, pretty often. I think every song on the album is good. I would sell my fucking soul to see them in concert, to see them, you know, do another movie. Um, so as I was looking for the album on Apple Music, I see that the soundtrack says it was released on January 1st of 1970. I was like, well, that's not right. What the fuck is that about? But then I looked into it, and in another place it says 2001 Sony Music Entertainment. So I always like reading the little blurbs about the bands in Apple Music. So here's what their blurb says. It's really cute. (laughs) With their long tails and ears for hats, the animated trio Josie and the Pussycats represented the cartoon universe's most daring plunge into the realm of rock and roll. Debuting in the early 70s, the Pussycats broke new ground as an all-female group as well as as a multicultural unit, a vanguard advancement not only within the realm of animation but also in the real world, where pop music remained a largely male and white phenomenon. Yes, Apple Music! Fuck yeah! Go read that whole blurb, it's really cute. But yeah, they're... Uh, album is it has a fairly high rating on Amazon, four point eight stars out of five, from three hundred and two users. We're gonna get into the song so the track list is as follows: Three small words, pretend to be nice, spin around, you don't see me, you're a star shapeshifter, I wish you well, come on money, jure around the world, backdoor lover. And Josie and the Pussycats. I, yeah, I fucking love this whole album. Pretend to be nice is probably my favorite song off of the album. Um, I just think it's really cute. I love the um, the pitch change, you know, towards the end of the song. Um, you Don't See Me has always been one of my favorites. That's the one that Josie listens to in the bathtub with the subliminal messages that tells her to go solo. Um, but I just think the lyrics on that one are so, they're very sad. It's like, I assume it's how she's feeling about Alan M, you know, about, I mean, the song is saying, you don't see me, you don't love me, um, you don't feel the way I do about you, basically. So I think it's probably about Alan, but yeah, I mean, reflecting on it now, I think I, I I liked it a lot because I I didn't have love for a long time, I guess. So I always felt like it was, yeah, the lyrics just really resonated with me. You should, you should re-listen to that song if you haven't. It's, it's a really sad love song. Um, yeah. Pretend to be nice. Uh, you don't see me. I wish you well is a great one. Um, I mean, all of them are, are my favorites. I think my favorites are three small world, three small words, pretend to be nice. You're a star shapeshifter. I wish you well. You don't see me. Yeah. All of them, (laughs) all of them are my favorite. Um, so I, we're going to end the podcast today with an interview that was like their reunion interview of the 20th anniversary of the, um, of the movie it was an interview with rachel Terra and rosario so they were interviewed for entertainment tonight and um and youtube but um i can't remember who the who one of them was through but anyway so um they watched the movie the day before the interview and then they just got to talk about it together it's it's such a sweet interview it made me cry watching it y'all should definitely check it out um Rachel Lee Cook said that this was one of the only movies she can watch herself in and actually enjoy it. That's very relatable. I think even celebrities have things that they've done that are cringy that they just don't even want to revisit, you know. Rosario said that even to this day she goes to the bathroom before she leaves the house, as Melody so wisely and casually says in that scene where Wyatt is offering them a record deal and they're trying to have a fucking secret meeting in the in the bathroom. And Melanie's like, I already went before we left the house. You should always go, even if you don't have to. So I thought that was cute. Rosario still does that. Rosario also said, I had, let's see. I hold this so precious. Being in this industry for so long, there are so few times where I've had the chance to work with lead actresses at the helm of it. And like the experiences we had in Vancouver and, you know, we got our matching bracelets and our matching as sidekicks and scene after scene, it was about, it wasn't about men in our lives. It was about our dreams, our passions and our talents and seeing these men being super supportive of these women and wanting to see them shine. There are so many levels to it that are just really profound looking back at it now. Um, I loved that they seem to have formed a really strong bond with each other. You can really tell the experience was and is very special to them and they really care for each other still. And I just love that. Um, it was, it it was just so good to see them again. And it, it really seemed like they held it very dearly like Rosario said. So there's another 20th anniversary interview with entertainment tonight. They've been around for a long time. Um, So they surprised Rachel Rosario and Tara with behind the scenes footage. And it was so cute because you could tell that they literally had not seen it or like (laughs) been reminded of it since it was filmed. Like, I'm sure they'd completely forgotten about it, but they reminisced about how cold it was shooting in Vancouver and how um, they would go off set and step into their UGG boots that were all lined up waiting for them Tara said she always had the tiniest clothes, which is true. I read somewhere that Melody's character never wears a full shirt. She's always either wearing something like sleeveless or like a crop top. So she's never, (laughs) never fully clothed. So I'm sure shooting in Vancouver, she was the fucking coldest out of all of them. But they also surprised them with that trivia I told you all about in the beginning about Beyonce. Aaliyah Left Eye and Brandy auditioning for Valerie's part and they were shook. Thought that was cute. Tara Reed said that she tried to buy the rights for Josie and the Pussycats to maybe do a sequel and um or to just have the rights to it, but they turned her down. So that fucking sucks. But yeah, this I, I tell me what y'all think about this movie. This is one of my favorite fucking movies of all time i it's just such a joy to watch every time i watch it i find a new you know appreciation for it i just think it's so um you know positive and and funny and relevant and um you know the the costuming like some of my favorite fucking costuming in movies in a movie ever like this the costuming in Josie and the Pussycats and probably Sophia Coppola's Marie Antoinette are like my favorite costuming of all time. I mean, I could think of more, but those are probably my top two. So yeah, that is, that wraps up this episode. I hope you enjoyed. I'm so sorry for the delay. Maybe we can get into that another time, (laughs) but I wish you all the best. I hope you have a great weekend, a great week. Um, feel free to give me a shout on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, yeah. All right. (laughs) Sending you hugs. Bye guys.